These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. So I have to start the show today by admitting I messed up last episode. You see, there were many battles and campaigns between Lagash and Uma over about 150 years, and in the last episode I mistakenly conflated the campaign against Uma fought by King Aenatum with a campaign fought against Uma by the subsequent King Enanatum. The specifics of the Battle of Black Dog Hill are from the later Enanatum tablet and speak of his victory there, while other of the details here are from the first campaign recorded in the Stella of Vultures. As I was reading through the sources for both events, I managed to completely miss the fact that Aenatum and Enanatum were in fact different people for a long time. And so to clarify, King Aenatum from last episode won the battle against Uma discussed in the Stella of Vultures. He then fought numerous campaigns against all sorts of enemies and in the end was only barely beating them back. He then died, possibly in battle, possibly of old age, and his brother Enanatum takes the throne, instead of Aenatum's sons for whatever reason. Then the city of Uma decides that this new king is probably weak. He was fairly old himself, and so they attack again in the Battle of the Hill of the Black Dog. Uma is again squished and sacked. Then new terms are established and a new boundary marker is erected. But soon after this, Enanatum dies of old age and is succeeded by his son Enmetenna. On Enmetenna's ascension, Uma again decides to test the new king of Lagash and sends a third campaign into the disputed territory of Gu Eden, again knocking over the hated boundary markers, then again being destroyed in battle, then sacked and humiliated. Whoever said history repeats itself was clearly reading Sumerian history. And now we're caught up and have cleared out the confusion about the various campaigns with Umma. King Enmetenna is on the throne of Lagash, and the old king of Umma has been forcefully deposed and replaced after his string of failures. This new king, known to history as Il, Stealer of Fields, seized power on a platform of sticking it to Lagash. And so the first thing the new king does is raise an army and knock over the boundary stone and he discontinues the war reparations payment demanded by Lagash. At this point, we are all rolling our eyes. Except this time, history does not repeat itself. Lagash responds to these indignities by sending a messenger, and Umma responds by shouting threats, but neither city sends an army into the other territory. What explains this break in the pattern? Well, for Umma's part, they were just on the losing end of a multi-generational war, and no matter how provocative the king's exhortations for vengeance, there would have been certain realities with regards to manpower and wealth at this point that the city would probably be facing. Likely, it simply wasn't possible for them to raise a credible army, and the extent of their power would have been to knock down some border markers, then march home claiming victory. Now, Enmetenna seems like a fairly clever fellow, and may well have understood how limited his enemy was and simply opted to disregard the threat of the ancient enemy. 
But the reason Enmetenna chose to ignore it is mostly because he seems to have had a different outlook on governance compared to his father and uncle. The protective deity of Lagash had always been Ninurta, a war god violent enough to make Quentin Tarantino uneasy. But one of Enmetenna's first acts was to introduce to the city a major cult of Enlil, god of lordship and king of gods. Now, it would be easy to overstate how big this is. Enlil would have already been a major god in the Sumerian pantheon in any city and would have received regular holidays and sacrifices. Everyone would have known who he was and acknowledged his supremacy in heaven, and there was probably already a shrine of some small size somewhere in town for him. But neither should we underestimate the impact of this, since nothing was more important to religious practice in Sumer than a man's personal god. The idea of a personal god came about in comparison to the social structures that the Sumerians saw in the world around them. The gods, they assumed, were organized more or less the same way as mortal society, with nobles at the top and the great mass of lesser gods below. And how often was it that a mere slave would be allowed to air a grievance or make a request before the mighty king of Lagash? The king is busy, and he has way more to do than worry about a particular slave, and even if he wasn't that busy, he's got other recreations. The Sumerians were a deeply pragmatic people, and they reasoned that there was no way the great Enlil, lord of wind and king of gods, was going to personally handle the affairs of mere humans. And so the average Sumerian would select one of the thousands of obscure minor gods, or possibly they would simply make one up, to be their personal deity. That personal deity would offer a certain amount of protection, but for greater things, they would pass the message up the chain of command, hopefully reaching the desired major god and eventually finding favor with them. And so similarly, entire cities would be protected by a personal god or two, and the god of the city would have been a major part of your city patriotism. And so bringing in Enlil to be a divine patron over the city would have signaled a major change in governance. Ninurta never fell out of favor, of course, and in fact, after Enmetenna's death, we find no more mentions of the Enlil cult, so Lagash clearly just reverted back to their local favorite. But this is important for understanding the reign of Enmetenna, and so it is important to understand correctly. You see, Enmetenna's response to the aggressions of Umma are not simply to ignore them, but also to meet them partway and compromise on certain of their grievances. Now, in this situation, with any other Bronze Age warlord, we would look at this and say that Lagash has become exhausted from all the fighting in the previous generations and are now too weak to hold on to their little empire. And indeed, the region of control had shrunk somewhat from the high watermark under Aenatum. But it isn't weakness that motivates Enmetenna's compromise. It is some combination of piety and charity. He did not alter the borders, which was a major part of their grievance, but he did give them full control over their part of the disputed Gu Eden region and no longer demanded an annual fee, which had previously been called interest on the loan of the land, a very inflammatory way of phrasing these war reparations. He also gave them full water rights to their side of the canal. 
and Umma will be pacified for the whole of Enmetenna's reign with these things. But the policy reforms don't stop there. To call him anti-colonialist would be a gross anachronism, but as he turns his foreign policy attentions from the great rival Umma to the city's under Lagashite hegemony, including Uruk and Larsa, among others, uh, he seems to have decided that the clenched fist holds less sand than the loosed fist, and so restores to them a certain amount of autonomy, including allowing them to put their local gods first rather than being forced to hold the gods of Lagash, Ninurta, as the highest. Additionally, it's said that he allowed the labor obligations of these cities to stay home instead of sending men to work for Lagash, though other places do state that he used the work crews from other cities to complete some of his building projects, so maybe he simply lessened the obligations, or maybe he only dropped the requirements later in his reign. He also formally elevated at least the king of Uruk and possibly others from a state of being subject, ritually speaking, to being his brother, though still under Lagashite control to some extent. And with all this, he managed to go his entire reign with no major wars. So what did he do with all his time if he wasn't fighting wars? Well, he was building temples for sure, including the aforementioned temple to Enlil. He may also have been the Lagashite king who completed a great canal between the Tigris and Euphrates River, which would obviously have been a massive boon to trade in the region, though it could also have been his uncle Aenadam who did that and he merely made large improvements to said canal. But unlike most kings, his eyes were not fixed solely upon the great and mighty tasks of huge buildings and foreign relations. He also felt for the common people, at least to a certain extent, and may have considered himself a protector of justice. He found the practice of splitting up families that fell into debt slavery repulsive, and so banned the selling of family members into slavery and released a large number of slaves in split families. He also prohibited interest-bearing loans and nullified the existing ones, ending one of the main practices that caused people to fall into debt slavery in the first place. And he didn't just do this in Lagash. These moral reforms were imposed on all cities subject to Lagashite hegemony, a very unusual step for a civilization that considered the separate city-states to retain a certain amount of administrative sovereignty, even when conquered. And so... While Enmetenna's reign is not the high point of Lagash's conquered territory, with the fruits of a few generations of conquest and construction under its belt, plus a generation of peace in which to enjoy it, coupled with the social reforms of the era, this period of around the year 2400 BCE was probably one of the nicest to live in for the common people. But after what may have been two or three decades of rule, the popular Enmetenna died and was succeeded by his son, named for his grandfather, Enanatum II. Lagash had been lucky to be blessed with two skilled rulers, followed by a competent short-lived one, followed by another who was both skilled and charitable. But the dice of hereditary succession are rarely on a hot streak for too long, and Enanatum Jr. was the end of the line, figuratively and literally. His reign was short, and one of my sources records nothing for his entire reign except to note that he constructed a beer house for Ninurta, and one assumes for himself as well. The king of Umma, 
a city who still hasn't gotten over their multiple defeats at the hands of Lagash, sees this weak new king and decides that now is the time to strike. And finally, he achieves his goal, overrunning the badly led Lagashite force and conquering the whole of the disputed Gu Eden in one stroke, never again to be recovered by Lagash. And with Enanatum II's general weakness and this major defeat against the historic rival, the goodwill that had been built up by previous kings of the dynasty of ur evaporated, and the other power block in the city made their move. You may recall from last episode that before the dynasty of ur was founded, Lagash was ruled by priest kings, selected from and by the upper echelons of the temples. Well... You may remember or not, but though it has been perhaps a hundred years, the priestly classes have definitely not forgotten. And a quick coup later, the dynasty of Ernantia is out and murdered, while the priest kings of Lagash are returned to power. And for all that this second Enanatum really does seem to have been useless, the return of the priest kings really does seem to be a case of the bad guys winning in history. Under the previous kings, there was always a certain amount of corruption and abuse, as well as structural problems endemic to the Sumerian economic system as a whole. But under the priest kings, it all came to a head. First, the structural problems, since those seem to have affected every city-state in this era, and was almost certainly occurring under the First Dynasty. You see, there was a good amount of social mobility in a Sumerian city. It would have been unusual to go from slave to noble in a single generation, but it was at least theoretically possible and a decently acceptable path over multiple generations. Similarly, pretty much anyone could fall into slavery if times got hard, and slaves were allowed to acquire money and property and had established systems to buy their own freedom. Slave was a legal category, but upper and lower class was simply a matter of wealth and literacy. And wealth, of course, could buy that literacy, either through educated children or hired scribes. And in the Sumerian imagination, most of the social order was made up of small landholders, farming for their own sustenance and selling the excess to the city. But the key here seems to have been land, and for various reasons, there were more forces working to consolidate land into larger holdings than there were splitting up the land for a growing population. And so, while the ranks of nobles and slaves would usually stay fairly constant, though with a certain amount of flow in and out and certain allowance for wars and boom and bust, there was a tendency over the course of centuries for land-owning smallholders, considered citizens, to shift into non-land-owning clients of the temples and nobles, doing the same tasks but now paid a wage and with less legal and political power within the city. This underclass would have enjoyed far fewer protections and had less recourse against abuse. Obviously, they still weren't slaves, and even slaves had some minor protections, but client status had less social mobility than a smallholder, and the weaker the lower classes were, the easier it was for the nobility to establish ever more tyrannical oppressions over them. We get a listing of grievances from the city of Lagash during this time, though for certain some of them were going on during the First Dynasty era as well, they just got much worse under the corrupt priest kings. 
Little of the wealth from all of the first dynasties war making had ever reached the common people. And now that this era of military victories was over, the priests were forced to either cut back on spending or extract that wealth in taxes from the people of Lagash. Cutting back, of course, was not an option. The former empire, too, fell apart around them as other cities rose to power while Lagash receded from the stage, so their ability to take from vassals diminished, and the loss of the fertile Gu'edin plain was another hard impact. But the voraciousness of government was undiminished. We have a document telling us that when performing religious ritual, a man would first be forced to pay the king five shekels. Then, once he'd paid that, an agent of the chief minister would come up and demand another shekel for himself. Then, when they got to the altar, the sage performing the ceremony would hold out his hand for another shekel. Similarly, for burial, divorce, and travel, there were excessive bribes demanded by multiple levels of officials. When men were summoned for their annual labor levy, they would be made to work all day, but the government no longer provided water for the laborers, a dreadful burden in that climate you can imagine. Interest on loans was said to be so extortionate that a man would take a loan to build a fish pond, then immediately the lender would come along and take all the fish from the pond as interest payment, then leave the man unable to pay the principal. Those being paid by the government, either in wages or in selling something to the palace, would have to conduct the business in the palace on palace scales, which were known to be unbalanced in favor of the government. And when you did sell something, the government would negotiate a price for a certain sheep, but then come into your pasture and select your very best sheep for that same price. And when sheep were sheared, it was mandatory to do so in the palace, to be mismeasured and taxed. Priests had the right, it seems, to come into anyone's personal garden and cut a tree or take the fruit with no payment. The number of government officers exploded in this time, and increasingly the taxes they took would stick to their own hands rather than make it up to the government, which led the palace and the temples to make more demands of the people. Ultimately, people were reduced to begging and debt slavery at shocking rates, or at least at rates which shocked the contemporary writers. The high priests of the city first elected an Entarzid as the king, who barely left any mark on history except to rule over the unfettered increase in general corruption. He may have been followed by a few other minor kings, records are spotty here, or he may have been followed directly by Lugal Anda, where things come to a head. Now, King Lugal Anda is not to be confused with the semi-mythic Lugal Banda of Uruk, because Lugal Banda of Uruk was a hero, while Lugal Anda was his opposite. Venal, corrupt, power-hungry, unintelligent, and wholly without superpowers granted to him by a deal with the lion-headed Anzu bird. Lugal Anda was the son of a high priest of Lagash, and though he should have been a docile stooge of the temple interests, as soon as he gained the throne, he got it in his head that he should be the one to restore the secular power of government over the temple. Now, he was not doing this out of virtuous motives, he simply wanted the wealth of the temple for himself and for his inner circle of cronies. And this is where things start to come to a head. 
In Lagash, there are three power centers, the people, the temple, and the nobles. Until now, the temple and nobles have worked together to bleed the people white. But under Lugal Anda, the fields devoted to maintaining the temples were taxed. He confiscated sacred temple oxen and sacred temple lands to farm sacred temple garlic and onions for his own table instead of the altar, stealing from the gods directly. All in all, he is accused of confiscating 650 hectares of land, and the pace of taxation and corruption spirals out of control at every level. And finally, the temple and people rally behind a single visionary, promising a new and better way of doing things. Urukagina deposes the corrupt Lugalanda and issues the first set of legal reforms in known history. Urukagina seems to have come from nowhere. We don't know anything about his pre-king life, and he never mentions the name of his father in official documents, suggesting that he has nothing to brag about there. His wife may have been a temple scribe, which would put the two of them at the lower end of the upper class, part of the scribal bureaucracy that greased the wheels of business and government, which would have given them a very detailed window into the corruption going on at the time. Now, his reforms do not survive to the present day. All we have are documents referencing reforms, mostly self-congratulatory pieces from the palace itself but enough secondary material survives that we can point to a few concrete improvements made. Taxes and fees were reduced across the board, but most notably in religious rituals. Burial fees, for example, fell from seven jugs of beer and 420 loaves of bread to three beers and 80 loaves. He establishes wage controls for certain of the temple administrators and religious figures, again, figures given in beer and bread, and for the most problematic and useless positions, he simply removed the job altogether, reasoning that there was no need for a head boatman, a head shepherd, and many other needless layers of management when a flatter structure can get the job done just as well with fewer officials in line to be paid and bribed. The most problematic, the Mashim priest judges, who, from all these complaints, seem to have done nothing but wandered the city demanding bribes, were eliminated entirely as an order, and where he couldn't get rid of a position, Urukagina claims that he removed every corrupt office holder from his administration. Urukagina, likely being aligned to the priestly class, promptly returned all of the temple property and land that Lugal Anda had confiscated and he also passed the first welfare law in known history, providing a certain amount of bread and beer for the elderly and blind. He prohibited confiscation by temple and palace officials of private property, decreeing that the official must offer a certain amount of silver for the desired good, and if the person refused to sell, the official had no recourse and could not even strike the impudent wretch. And so many people had been unjustly imprisoned on false charges that the new king issued a general amnesty, considering the problem so great that he even released the murderers and thieves, presuming that there was no way to distinguish the few true criminals from the mass of unjustly accused ones. It isn't all good, though. We have another fragment of reform documents that show a different side, a more traditionally Bronze Age side of the idealist prince. In this fragment, 
he crusades against ruinous usury, stating that if a man takes a loan to build a fish pond, the lender cannot take the fish out of the pond as payment, which is likely a legal metaphor as well as, of course, a literal event that was happening to generate outrage in the city. He declares an end to certain religious fees and announces that when stolen property is recovered but unable to be identified, it will be hung on the main gate in history's first lost and found bin. He then decrees that if a woman speaks to a man in an arrogant fashion, the legal recourse will be to smash her teeth in with a baked brick, then inscribe her name on the brick and hang it on the main gate for all to see. Also, polygamy had always been legal, though it doesn't seem to have been very common, and this remains the case. But polyandry, where a woman marries multiple men, is now considered an abomination and outlawed. One scholar notes that these are the first misogynistic laws known to history. And Urukagina closes out his reform document with powerful words, saying, Urukagina has been bound by the god of Lagash, Ninurta, to command these things, so that the orphan and the widow will not be subjugated by the powerful. Good stuff, but how much of it was actually carried out? There's some debate as to how much was promised and how much was delivered. We could say pretty confidently, knowing the nature of government, that Urukagina didn't manage to root out every single corrupt official, though he may have gotten some or even most of them. On the other hand, the decrees ending taxation and government measuring of barley and wool would have taken place pretty much immediately. It didn't require compliance after all, it just required that people stop showing up to have their wool taxed. And so, all we can say with confidence about enforcement is that Urukagina was likely somewhere in the process of implementing his famous reforms when the armies of Umma appeared on the horizon. Oh yes, Umma. We forgot about them. They weren't a threat for so long. But then, useless Ennanadam II managed to bungle a war against them, and they were able to rise to power. And then we sort of ignored them for a while. But that was a mistake, because while we were ignoring them, a man named Lugal Zagazi rose to power. And you can bet that Lugal Zagazi, the man of Umma, has not forgotten about Lagash. It's unclear what Lugal Zagazi's origins were, except that he came to be the king of newly revitalized Umma sometime following their successful war against King Ennanatum II. Additionally, he had some sort of religious tie to the city of Uruk, and may have, through marriage or some other non-violent means, also managed to secure himself the kingship of Uruk. At the point where he moves his capital from Umma to Uruk and starts fashioning himself as king of Uruk is when he makes his move, though the Lagashites continue to call him the man of Umma, never forgetting his humble origins in that hated city. Having the combined power of two cities behind him, he sends an army to invade Lagash. The nobles of Lagash are currently furious at King Urukagina for taking away their income streams, and thus makes it difficult for him to prosecute a defensive war. So the enemy army gets all the way to the walls of Lagash with minimal opposition. The two sides skirmish for months under the high walls of Lagash. 
until the beginning of the harvest season forces Lugal Zagazi to let his men leave the blood-soaked dirt of Lagash to work their fields. But Lugal Zagazi isn't done yet, returning soon after only to be stymied yet again under the walls. A third siege in seven years is unusual even by the standards of the day, and it shows us that Lugal Zagazi thought of nothing but the destruction of his ancient enemy. The man of Umma hated Lagash from the day he was born, and had arranged his entire life for this moment. With the priests and nobles refusing to support this proto-communist, even in the face of an existential threat, a breakthrough was finally made, and the combined force of the vengeful Ummites and skilled warriors of Uruk poured into the city to wreak utter destruction, a level of sacking that horrified even the bloodthirsty Sumerians of other cities. He plundered palaces and tore down temples, even going as far as to burn down the statues of the gods that lived in the hearts of the temples, the figures in which the gods themselves resided. Every plant in the fields was uprooted, and civilians were slaughtered when they weren't taken as slaves. In fact, Lugal Zagazi and his barbaric horde of Umites went so overboard with their sacrilegious destruction that we have curses on him from the gods written in a great lament for the destruction that he wrought there that day. But those curses were yet to bite, since Lugal Zagazi would leverage this victory to cow many of the surrounding cities into submission, the opening chapter of Mesopotamian psychological warfare. He rose quickly to conquer and terrify the entire region, becoming king of Sumer, then sending troops as far west as the Mediterranean Sea and east deep into Elam in modern Iran. He claims to have conquered all these places, though modern scholars suspect he simply launched successful long-distance raids. Whatever the case, in a flash, Lugal Zagazi had gone from king of the miserable backwater of Umma to king of the entire world, and over his 25-year-long reign, it was inconceivable that anything could challenge the mightiest Sumerian empire the world had ever known. In fact, of all the great kings of the early dynastic period, Lugal Zagazi is probably the one who comes closest to defining an epoch all on his own, the one who got closest to being a household name. That is, of course, until a cupbearer from Kish came along and did it all better. Join us next week as we really do turn the page on a great era of history, finally transitioning from the early dynastic period into the world's first age of empire, when we begin the saga of a man who really did manage to become a household name and see the gods' vengeance fall upon blasphemous Lugal Zagazi. Because next week we will hear the tale of Sargon of Akkad. Thank you for listening.